you see that photo of the one with the massive balls? I mean, you can write all the comedy you want, but it is quite sobering. A funny picture of a video of an animal, you go, I will never be as funny as a squirrel with massive balls. This week on Walking the Dog, Ray and I popped to Cambridgeshire to go for a stroll with fabulous comedian Jeff Norcott and his beautiful dog Annie. Jeff is obviously a hugely successful stand-up who's also appeared on shows like Live at the Apollo and Would I Lie to You? And he also talks about politics regularly in a very entertaining way, popping up on everything from Question Time to Politics Live. Jeff is hilarious company, as you'd expect, but he's also got this very calm, old-school sort of decency and honour about him. He's the kind of person who you'd always trust to have your back. Basically the opposite of Ray, who'd sell you down the river if there was cheese involved. I had such a lovely walk with Jeff and Annie because the man is a diamond. And if you want more of him, do go see him live in his show Basic Bloke, touring all around the UK. Or check out his book, The British Bloke Decoded, available everywhere. Or you can listen to his podcast, What Most People Think, on all the usual platforms. All the info is on jeffnorcott.co.uk. I'm going to stop talking now and hand over to the man himself. Here's Jeff and Annie. And Raymond. Is your dog good at jumping over stuff? I mean, okay, I asked that because your dog doesn't look like it would be good or even capable of jumping over anything. Oh, here we go, there's a little gate here. I've started off by being mean about your dog again. I didn't want to go back to this. Jeff, I mean, what are your feelings about this podcast, given how Raymond is at the moment? Well, he's just stopped in the middle of a car park. He seems to be more intent on, on going towards a road than the field which I think is a very undog-like behaviour, but he's got a very undog-like haircut, so... Come on, Ray. He doesn't look as evil in, in person. What a lovely thing, Jeff. I said as evil. <laughs> um, should, we, should we walk around this way? Because I'm just yeah. conscious of that dog, of, of the lead. Yeah, do you know what? That dog and that owner mm. look quite ill-suited. Yes, I know. It's weird with dogs now because there is this talk about aggressive breeds and you don't know if it drifts into bigotry to make presumptions about breeds, but there's also statistics. I don't know if that is an XL bully. But what, the, the what, what we're seeing... <laughs> uh, oh, there we go. <laughs> they make the same noises. Oh, my God. Well, say hello then. Well, she was supposed to be bigger. This is an embarrassing sized dog for a bloke to have. She's gorgeous. She's a handful. Are these their names, Hugo and Ralph? Yeah, obviously I can tell them apart. But from a distance, even I struggle sometimes. So when they're running off, so I know which one to call, it's easier having their names on them. So I can see them. Powerful names. They're beautiful dogs. What kind of dogs are they? Cockapoos. Oh, they're cockapoos. And also, I like that they're both. Fashion branded, Hugo and Ralph. Well, they're going to be Colin and Brian, and my husband was like, absolutely no way, I'm not having that at all. But he likes his designer labels. So meet, meet Raymond. Yeah. Good call by the husband. Yeah. Bye bye, Hugo and Ralph. Jeff, this is where Ray really comes into his own on the grass. Can you see? I can. Well, he's, he sort of seems to be hovering because of his style, his hairstyle. Is it first up? What's it called? His cut? Yeah, I call, I call it his look. His look. How often do you have to, because what happens with our dog is that they just get really hairy and then we shear them like sheep, as you can see. And then they try to what, do what she's doing now, which is to cover <laughs> herself in geese shit. And she hasn't worked out that every time she does that, she then gets showered when she gets home. Oh, here we go, Hugo and Julius. What Hugo and Ralph. Hugo, oh. 
Hugo's fast. I mean, Hugo, very middle-class names as well, aren't they? <laughs> we should talk through your dogs, Jeff. In fact, right. I'm going to properly introduce you. I'm so thrilled. I'm with the enormously talented comedian, podcaster, writer and dog owner, Jeff Norcott, and his gorgeous dog, Annie. Or Anne-Marie, if Anne -Marie. you want to be formal. And you have... Another dog as well, don't you? Who's not with us today? She's not with us today. And Lily Allen. We have a thing of naming our pets after like prominent pop stars of the day. So we had a cat years ago we called Dizzy Rascal. So we like giving them two names. But yeah, Annie to her friends. I can't let her off the lead, by the way, because I just can't. And Annie is a, She's some a, sort of a poo. Yeah, they've all got poo in them. Um, the... Uh, she's uh, yeah, she's a cockapoo, but she just didn't get big, and um, she's also fading her colour. So when we got her, she was a really lovely rust colour, and now she's sort of fading into the same sandy colour. And um, she's less distinctive. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want her to hear me say that, but it's uh, it she's was, absolutely. Beautiful. I mean, can I dye her just to, you know? <laughs> is that does that happen? People probably do that, don't they? I vaguely remember there was a thing back in the noughties. There were a lot of regrettable choices made then by all mm. of us, but there was a vague sort of fad for colouring dogs' hair. Yeah. I'm thinking those sort of Paris Hilton, you know, pink streaks and yes. things. Yes. That right. must be, but you know how like, I always think dogs are just must be so, so disrespected by other species because of how they cosy up to us. Do you think so? Yeah, if you was another spit anything in the wild, you'd look at dogs and go, my God, you absolute Vichy regime pets. <laughs> um, but that would be the ultimate, wouldn't it? It's like, not only that, look at you, what happened to you? There are some animals where you think they might do all right in the wild for a little while. I think dogs are so, they've lost contact with that side of themselves. Being very negative about dogs, this is my point, is, is I think true love is to love something but to also criticise it endlessly and that's what I'm like with both my dogs. My, both my dogs got serious character flaws. What are their character flaws, Jeff? The, the thing is all dog owners listening to this will immediately presume this is all my fault. This is what happens with dog owners, they just think well this is something you've done, uh, which I think is victim blaming. but because I see myself as the victim. Lily is incredibly stubborn and, and, and willful and... Yeah, she's quite aloof and superior and detached, whereas this one is, is very loving, Anne-Marie. She's the most loving dog I've ever had, but she's also so entitled. Like, whatever's happening, she feels that she should be the absolute lead sort of living thing in that situation. She's quite an alpha female, is she? So, so alpha. Like, the problem is, is she goes up to all these dogs and, and I'm sort of expecting a dog to kind of growl and chill, but they never do, they just tolerate it. So she, hon she honestly thinks she's the undefeated heavyweight champion of this area, because she's never had a slap. Though, not that I approve slapping. Look, oh, you've got to be careful these days, don't you? Look at this, Jeff. That is lovely. How can you not hear the Black Beauty music when he does that? <laughs> Ray Ray! What, spe what breed is it, a species? What breed is he? <laughs> I'm not going to move on from that so easily, Jeff. You just said, what species is he? Yeah, I think that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I've ever been in the company of, of, of a, this kind of dog before. He is an Imperial Shih Tzu. Uh-huh. And do you want to know a great fact about him? Yes. He is the brother of your friend Catherine Ryan's dog. He is the brother of Meg Ryan, Catherine Shih Tzu. Well, why didn't you say so? We're family. <laughs> Do you know what though? Now you say it, I see, 
<laughs> I mean, like, obviously all breeds of dogs look like other breeds of dogs, but I do see the resemblance. Do you? I do, I do actually. I know exactly which dog. I mean, Catherine's got a lot of dogs. There's a lot to, uh, there's a lot to choose from, but I think I know which, which one it is. I should say at this point, there was a brief break because the producer has just said she's desperate for a wee. The reason I'm telling you this is because I think it says a lot about Jeff. He said, I'll just come back to mine and use the loo. You don't always yeah, get that often. Yeah, in this climate, I, I said it like in a really nice, <laughs> non-creepy way. I think it's really important to stress that. Just come back to mine. I didn't say, come back to mine sounds bad. I say you could always use, for historical content, I say you could always use the toilet in my house while I am outside. <laughs> We're in Cambridgeshire and this is your local park, isn't it? Which it, is really it's pretty. One of them. Yeah, no, it's nice around here. I mean, the thing is, is that Cambridgeshire, it's always, it's not good for the brand, you know, living in Cambridgeshire. And what's yeah. the brand? Well, it's what, what to, you know, every man, but I, li I, li I live in Cambridgeshire in a townhouse, you know, so class-wise, I've definitely, um, you know, moved up. Oh, what a beautiful dog. <laughs> four months. Four months, wow. Is it a wow. or something? It's our Fox Red Lab. Beautiful. Oh, it's like an, a dog on an advert. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you think, Jer? That coat as What's well. the name? Harry. Harry? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, then. Lovely to meet you. Bye-bye, yeah. Harry. Come on, Harry. What's this? I mean, Harry's putting all of us to shame. Yeah, Harry's honestly. just... You know they talk about that phrase, rude health? <laughs> I, I get what that means as you get older. It's like if someone looks offensively good, you know, like there's a kind of... There's Those, a glow. If he was a bloke and you were in a relationship with him for 18 months, it, suddenly the scales could fall for your eyes and you go, oh, it's only the luscious coat, you know, and the bounding enthusiasm. <laughs> Getting a bit threatened by Harry. Well, I'm 46, you know. Jeff, you still got it, I'm sorry. <laughs> a long time from my... I don't know, I don't think I was ever a Harry. I don't think it was a Harry. I was. You know uh, what you've got? I think you've got what me and my friends call the confidence. Oh, do I? Do you know what the confidence is? Um, I, well, I know why I see it in other people. I... It's a specific male thing that we talk about, where there's a, an inner... It's kind of like you don't have to shout about it. Ah, right. That's tiredness. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, a lot of the time, just having to take it slowly and to think of what I say. God, I'm really glad that it plays out as confidence. Well, it all depends on what level the anxiety is on any given day. Like, if we'd have had this chat yesterday, I'd have been a bit prangy, a bit... Why? Well, I don't know, just, well, yesterday all that business was blowing up in the press from that, um, that what, panel chat I was part of. What was that, Jeff, then? So I was on Politics Live, and um, we spoke about a lot of stuff, and then we were going to talk about my book, and... Uh, to make it sort of relevant, the hosts mentioned that the government were talking about a minister for men, and I said, well, look, I'm not massively wedded to the idea. It might be, it might be a good idea, it might not. I said, but, you know, the issue of male suicide and all this sort of stuff uh, means that maybe there is some things that deserve specific attention. And then the two sort of female panellists sort of were looking to take it in another direction, and I was quite insistent. I was like, no, I think these are serious things, and I don't think we should kind of try and distract from that. And uh, so that clip then got quite a lot of traction and then I woke up yesterday and uh, the journalist involved Ava, Ava Evans, who's a good mate, you know, worked with her mm. loads and we get on well and even all, straight after we had the chat she said look, you know, maybe we could continue this discussion, you know, keep it constructive but then um, Lawrence Fox had said some very sexist stuff about her on GB News 
mm. and uh, it all became a sort of different discussion. Um, but yeah, all day long, I was sort of just on yeah. edge, you know, because I was I'm obviously nowhere near as bad as it was for her, but but it's a it's it weird. Anything like that when you're trending or part of a story that's yeah. trending. It's an unnatural place to be in, isn't it? Having that much focus. So I think you just go into the state of high alert, possibly. Well, I was trying to explain, to explain it um, because, you know, my wife's pointed out that mostly people were saying, you know, positive things about how I'd handled the discussion. And then I get this really weird analogy. I was like saying, like, imagine if you were, if everyone was saying there was a photo of you out there and everyone was saying, <laughs> oh, doesn't she look beautiful today? But you just didn't feel beautiful that day, right? On that particular day. So on that day, you'd rather no one was discussing you for good or ill. Whereas today, you know, today's a different, I don't know why, you know, you wake up a different day, you feel completely different. So I sort of thought, right, rather than engage in a negative side of that story, I thought I should do something, you know, with men's charities and all of this mm. sort of stuff. But then there's always still that thing as a stand-up comic, and especially coming from where I'm coming from, where you think, oh, you virtue signaling wanker you just do you know like you start you sort of have that <laughs> narrative where you sort of heckle yourself um but i don't think that internal narrative is a reason to do nothing so we've got to my car are we gonna drive to jeff's now i could i could just do a wild way oh my god park. is that is that mad these are the gen it's not mad it's not mad i mean i, don't, I really don't want to interrupt the no i think we're at the car let's let's, let's you know let's okay. let's do I'm this i'm so sorry don't you're, worry, you're gonna feel so much happier once you've done yeah. it um right shall i just hop in the car with yeah, you please guys please do let jeff go in the front we're just getting in the car and we're going to take the producer back to jeff's house for a wee rather surreally and annie's in the back here he is here's dad how do you feel? I just called It'd be weird if my wife's in the house. I'll just suddenly <laughs> arrive two minutes and a dog. <laughs> so? I just met these women over the park, babe. And, uh, <laughs> one of them said that she needed the toilet and she'd be like, yeah, this is how it begins. Here we go. This is your local manor then. So is this where you come every day, this park, to walk the dog? Not this one. I would with... Um, Lily's a really good walker, but Annie not so much, so it's more of a localised. Annie is little and often, whereas Lily, she will smash out an hour job. I have a real um, lack of entitlement on the road. I don't have it anywhere else in my life, but when it comes to this, yeah. I always assume I'm in the wrong. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Driving, I suppose, I drive in something I'm quite confident with just because of the, I do it so much. Like when I, first year I did stand up, I think I did 55,000 miles and I suppose, and, and touch wood, I've, the amount of miles I've driven without anything bad happening, I've bit by bit come to believe that I'm maybe one of the greatest drivers ever in a classically understated male way. I was just going to say, I've never heard a man say that before, Jeff. <laughs> but not like in skills, but just in terms of like like safety. And please, I mean, God, if this is like, if this something terrible happens, this podcast is really, I mean, the hubris of saying this. But I, I, I believe that about, like my is son, it left here? It's right here, sorry, I should have said. Um, my, my son as well, he is, I think, one of the top sleepers there's ever been. He sleeps so well and he sleeps... Weird so flex. Yeah, but just, I, I, I sort of, <laughs> I even say to him, like, do you know, son, you might be one of the greatest sleepers that's ever lived. It's not quantifiable, but it's good for everybody to be the best at something, right? Jeff, I let him go, was that right? I, well, I think, look, technically, I think that... That bridge we just went over is big enough for two cars, but the optics of it make people think that it's not. So I completely think it was the right thing to do. It's the two walls on either side. 
But sometimes when I'm going over that bridge, I just carry on driving. It's, it's interesting to see the people's eyes get big as they suddenly... Do you yeah. know what I have, a, and it's a proper phobia, in that it's like a horse at the Grand National, you know when they yeah. refuse a fence or something, is um, <laughs> railway crossings. Yeah. I can't actually Don't drive over them. I get that, because you just think, what if, right? Well, it's, it's just the potential for things going wrong seems so enormous. Mm. If you turn just right at the end and then sort of pull up, pull up on the right. Shall I stay with um, Annie? Uh, you, yeah. yeah. Why don't I? I'll stay with Annie and Jeff will take you into his house. Good girl, Annie. Annie, stay there, darling. Annie, he's coming back in a second. Jeff, thank you so much. Yeah, Not at all. What an old school gent you are. Well, this is this is the thing, you know, is I think there's there's a place for that, isn't there? I mean, my mum was like, um, she was so big with that stuff on me. Was she? Yeah, massively. Um, I mean, like she. She, I mean, she was not to the extent of like standing up when a woman enters a room. That could be. That's a bit much, isn't it? Um, <laughs> no, but my mum was like, you know, she. I think she just wanted to. I think women are very good at this. Is that. Of trying to make men be better for other women. So, like, if you go and buy, if you go shopping to buy your wife a Christmas present, and you just say to the shop assistant, "That's what I'm doing," that woman, not just for her job, but she'll try and upsell you because she's got it in her mind. You turn left here. Like I can see that they're sort of thinking, "Oh, how nice it will be for that woman to get a nicer gift." Or, I think generally speaking, there's a lot more appetite among women to do things that will make stuff better for other women in relationships. So we're back in the car now, and Jeff very kindly allowed us to drive back to his home so the producer could use the loo. But see, what I'm starting to is I thought this is going to sound yeah, um, excessively humble, but I would just hope that that would be a default thing that anyone would do. I'm, I'm now worried about people in the entertainment industry not allowing people to use toilets. <laughs> I think what it's to do with, and it does come back to what you were saying, I'm not saying you wouldn't have done it for a guy, I don't know, I felt there was like a deference there and a respect for the fact that... Yeah, no, you're... you're Do you know what I mean? Well, no, you're absolutely like, right. Like, it's, it's an easier thing for a man to just maybe say, oh, I'll go in a bush or something. I would definitely have said that, yeah. You're and I think right. it's little things like that I've noticed already about you, which is, I keep a note of this, that Raymond's slow and I've got little legs. You walk quicker than us and I noticed you immediately slowing down to accommodate our speed that doesn't off always happen see this is where I think women are a strategic advantage is just the level of detail <laughs> that women absorb about human beings is greater right so the data but it can cause confusion if you turn <laughs> left here because sometimes too much data can be overwhelming yeah um, and detail <laughs> there's a lot of detail but um, but yeah, I mean, it's one of the things I've been speaking about is, is that balance that blokes need to strike between when you're together just chatting shit, inconsequential nonsense that you find refreshing, and but not also, not to the extent that you're just simply not up with the details of each other's lives, like the headline yeah. figures. Because if you, I think I mentioned it in the book, but I sort of said if you don't want to be in a position where a guy says his second wife has left him and you, you didn't know the first had two, you know, you just, you've got to... <laughs> 
have some grip. So I just think there's a, it's a lot of a lot of the dialogues at the moment are just like, well, men have got to right. Uh, right here. Yeah. yeah, they've got to switch to become like head, massively empathic and things that just don't come as natural. It's so obvious that the the solution is somewhere between those things, isn't it? It's just yeah. checking in a bit. And, and, you know, a lot of blokes just, no, they don't know, fuss. Do you think this is an selfish place to park, No, I think, I, think you're, I think you're fine. They're Are you the, sure? They're at the distance that they already need to be. Are you sure? Yeah. I would say so. Come on, Annie. Oh, look at you. She's Do you know, Jeff, friend. Come on, when um, you went inside, Annie was really whining for you. Was she? She was really pining and looking at, and then I gave her a little stroke and yeah. she calmed down. But I thought it was very touching that she was really... I mean, she does do that for most things, I would say. I, I'm not just batting back the love here. She's a big whiner. Come on, I'm going to pick you up because you're being silly billy. See, I use the word silly billy around Raymond. Mm. And I think it's because I forgot to have children. I use the sort of language I would use that you yes. might use with your son or something. I think dogs, there's like, there's a Venn dog, like you, you can't fully equate it. I think that the first bit of having a dog and the first bit of bringing a kid home, there's definite overlaps. You know, like th it's overwhelming. Like when you have, um, when we brought Annie back, say we were a couple that decided to have another kid a lot later, you've forgotten about the level of responsibility that goes mm -hmm. with it. And I had proper, I felt like one of those blokes who go, what have I done? It's too much, can't cope. We'll run away and live in Great Yarmouth. Um, but I do like the increased family unit size. I do like that because yeah. we, we, you know, we've got the one kid as well. So having more animals feels nice. And, that, and that's your son, Sebastian? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I generally go with Seb because I'm trying to keep some sort of working class credibility. But you know what, I like, I like the way that women say his name, because when women say his name, they make him sound like a romantic hero. You know, Sebastian. It's like sort of melodramatic in a good way, but whereas blokes say it, they sort of go, Sebastian. I'm well, gonna... Only if you say it like that, lads. Well, it's, it's Brideshead Revisited is where I go instantly. Yeah. That was my first crush, which tells you a little bit about my background. <laughs> well, so when I was a kid, and I still might, oh God, this is the point where I am as stupid as some people think I am. So it wasn't a sequel, Brideshead Revisited, because it sounded like it, didn't it? For years I thought that as a kid. Like they was made and then they, they sort of did a reboot, like Marvel, you know. Was that, was that what I did, like a multiverse reboot of Brideshead 1? Brideshead, he's back and this time it's personal. <laughs> you know what's so tragic now is I'm currently averaging reading about a book a year and I blame brilliant podcasts like yours and just general audio <laughs> stuff because it's so easier to listen to stuff but you know what I like to do when I was teaching was I did to, the best thing I was good at was engaging teenage lads because they had to learn this stuff but they couldn't have given less of a shit so when you go to a teenage lad how does Romeo feel in act three scene four it's like they haven't ever really contemplated their own feelings so you're trying to get them to so I was quite good at making it make sense to them on that level. Mm. And I have a little bit of guilt that I could have, could have made a difference. Well, you did. Well, actually, I want to go back, because we've got lots mm. to talk about. I want to talk about your brilliant book, The British Bloke Decoded. And I just want to remind myself of the Jeff origin story. So mm. things started in Wimbledon. With your mum and your dad and your sister, mm -hmm. you always say, you know, you use the word working class. That was your, 
I suppose, did you feel that was your brand? Were you aware of that when you were growing up? Well, it wasn't up? like that probably for the first bit of my life because, you know, both my mum and dad were working and we, we were living in a property we owned. And then the sort of almost sitcom-style status drop was when <laughs> my mum divorced my dad, but she let him keep the house and then we moved into a council estate. That's your sitcom start, isn't it? Like, yeah. why the hell have you done that? <laughs> when I started living there, I would have seemed anything but working class. You know, I was almost like a comic figure because of how I spoke and how we acted. Like, my mum used to not let us swear and stuff. She had standards, standards. Um, but then what happened was my dad got made redundant and then the, that recession of the early 90s was pretty brutal. People sort of tend to forget, really. There wasn't as much state support. Yeah. Yeah, excuse yeah. me, I just burps. Um, as there is now, I mean... I'll always remember when I saw Sebastian and Bride said, oh dear. <laughs> that really is indicative of the whole thing was I was trying to talk in an elevated way and then I just burped in the middle of a sentence. But, um, but then, so the formative bit of my life was then. So I was like nine or ten then. If you spoke to my sister, who's a bit older, who had more time in the sort of more middle class bit, she's very sophisticated and elegant and, you know, like people often, there were times where they thought, like, you definitely, you know, related. There was shit that happens to you when you're nine, I think. Yeah. Which might be the next book. Shit that happens to you when you're nine. Is it, because everyone you meet that's got like a big story or yeah. formative thing, it's roughly about the age of nine that it happened. Your parents got divorced, as you say. Yeah. Was that a sort of, seismic shock for you even then? It was spoke about in hushed tones and I remember confiding in a girl at school, at primary school, Nicola. I remember whispering it to her and I remember that the teachers were being different with us because there was a proliferation of divorces. Because I guess, you know, the more it happened, there were a lot of women that just thought, I could be a lot happier than this, right? Um, and, and my mum and dad's relationship, it was definitely the best thing at that time. I wasn't devastated by them divorcing, but you can't escape the difficulties around it, you know, and it was weird that we moved into a council estate. It was, you know, but my mum, you know, I sort of respect her maverick energy now because she just wanted independence. So she didn't want to depend on him, which is, it's so weird, isn't it? Because on one hand, you could take a feminist argument, which is right, you've given him your energy and your love, take him for everything he's got. And then there's this other one of like, if he doesn't support, well, no, he, it's not that he didn't support us, that's not true. But she just wanted as much independence. And I think, I think on another level, she just trusted him more with the house. <laughs> My mum was terrible with money. Right. Yeah. And she was, and your dad was, he worked for, um, was it like an engineering company or he was a draftsman or something? Yeah, he was a draftsman for BT. So again, it's one of those jobs, and this is where I find myself, which is between the worlds, you know? It's just got one eye up into the boardroom and the kind of um, the elevated nature of business, but also you're dealing with the, sh the shop floor and all of that stuff. And it is, I do think that the Norcots have always been in that, that middle ground. Like my dad, he, he went to like the poshest church in Wimbledon, St Mary's Church, but he also drank like in the most sort of rank and file boozer. And I guess I've sort of ended up in the same place as him. Jeff, I've run out of poo bags. I don't have any poo bags either. Do you know what? We could get arrested. I've got some receipts on me. This is, <laughs> this is glamorous, isn't it? I should, I... Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is being a dog owner, is that you might just have one. Jeff's so found a poo bag. Yeah. Uh, do you know, though, I've, I did that on stage once. I reached into my back pocket and just went, oh, I've got a poo bag. 
problem with comedy is people always think that you've set something up and not that just you're an idiot <laughs> reacting in the moment. So what they go is, good, what's the joke? And then when they realise it's not a joke, they just lose respect for you as a human being. They go, oh, you're a mess of a man who has poo bags in. And I was, uh, I was driving once. I just, I've, I've always been paranoid that I had like terrible breath. And then I was, um, I could just smell, as I was sort of like breathing, I could smell shit. I was like, oh my God, does my breath smell of shit? Not just like bad breath, but smell of actual shit. And what had happened was I'd put a dog poo bag down my inner pocket earlier. And then I was just thinking, and this was not that long ago, so I was thinking, how many years have I been the subject of derision? <laughs> and, like, and then I went all the way to thinking how lovely it was that people had tolerated it. And, you know, be, I mean, it was a real roller coaster. So tell me, yeah, about your dad, Jeff. It's interesting what you were saying because I know. I loved your memoir. Um, I want to get the title right. Where did I go right? And it was really interesting in that you talked about your dad had issues with alcohol. I found that really, I mean, it obviously wasn't great for you, but it told me a lot about why you are how you are, I think. It is a kind of chaos it brings, whether you like it or not. And I think it's inevitable that you'd want to create structure and order and sort of control things in your own life. Well, it was like that for a while, mm. like, but it wasn't like that all the time. And he and he got very sober, and he got very sort of like engaged and stuff like that. So it's it's weird, isn't it? With difficulties, you, you don't want to rank yourself too highly because he was always like, you know, loving dad, a hard working dad. But it was it was a strange culture, you know, like in the. 80s of kind of you know drinking on that level it's weird because I've never had a problem with like drinking you know every night or getting drunk like if I, if I get I've never probably got drunk two days in a row in my whole life mm. but when I do get drunk absolute arsehole not not like a bad person but just go so stupid with it because yeah. in a way I suppose in my mind it's like I can do this today this is the day that I can do this and my god but do you think that was the factor as you say at that point your dad was drinking more than was practical in terms of raising yeah. a family. And do you think that is what led to the, your parents divorcing in some ways? Well, yeah. Like, and then he, he got sober, like straight afterwards, like, straight afterwards. So it's all, it's all complicated to work out mm. what I think, I think generally with blokes is that the process of becoming a husband and, and father is is, I'm not saying it's easy for women to be mothers and wives, but it's really complicated for a lot of blokes. And the responsibility element of it is something a lot of blokes don't talk about. Mm. Like how, how they adapt to that, how they take it on, what it does to their blood pressure, all of, all of that. I think maybe he had a, had a bit of that as well, because it's a sign of taking it seriously in a way, is, is if you're not a bit terrified by being a provider, then you're probably not paying attention, because it's, mm. it's a lot of responsibility. But that, that, I mean, those things like in terms of being a bloke, provide and protect I think are really important things I think that I'm not saying again that there's unusual or specific to men but if you had like a pillar of masculinity or a couple of pillars you go those would be on the motto in Latin mm. you moved to the estate and you were suddenly sort of had a slight sense of otherness I guess didn't you yeah yeah I, I, I had a, de a decent <laughs> vocabulary at that point hello Oh, Schnauzer. Hello, Schnauzer. <laughs> What's the Schnauzer called? Frank. Frank, the Schnauzer. <laughs> Ever so cute. Thank you. 
Oh, Frank. Bye-bye, Frank. Oh, I like the look of Frank, Jeff. Something intriguing well, about Frank. Frank's my middle name. See. Is it? Yeah. So we're, Frank Norcott would have been quite a cool name, wouldn't it? I would sound like an East End villain if my name is Frank Norcott. <laughs> but Jeffrey you know, is just weird. <laughs> Jeff Norcott, it's just a weird name. It's so I've... weird that my dad was also called that and they just thought, oh, let's go again with that name. Let's well, give it another run out. Let's have a sequel. Although, interestingly, I once read something about patronyms, mm. which is what I think they are, aren't oh, they? Well, didn't know that word. And... It's an old tradition, isn't that? Which is kind of dying out now. The idea now is that you put your personal brand onto a kid more. <laughs> yeah. Whereas back then, it was like, you get what we had. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting is that I'm sure there was a survey once and it said that kids who'd been named after their father, because it's usually boys, had fewer behavioural problems because there was always that sense of a parent breathing mm. down your neck. Yeah, and like carrying the being representing the brand. You know what? That's really interesting. I never, until literally this moment, genuinely never thought about what the psychological impact. <laughs> I only just thought it was just this funny, stupid thing that I had his name. I never thought about the fact that he, this was a great thing about being a bloke, 46 years old, and this is the first day in my life that I'm reflecting on what the impact of that was, given that it's quite rare in my generation. Do you think there may be some truth in that, though? You were quite conscientious and keen to do the right thing by your parents and your family yeah. and name. Yeah, definitely. And I was definitely like that at school. I, I got in trouble sometimes, but it was mainly for ex exuberance. It was, you know, I've always been quite more, you know, respectful of authority and discipline. And, you know, even if you look at my like character, I'm not anti-establishment in, in the sort of conventional sense of the word. It's not a very cool thing to be, but pro-establishment is like, all right, let's not totally discount the establishment. But because I suppose some people say that I've done all right by it, which is a fair point, but also, I don't know, just I don't want to be instantly dismissive of everything. It's like the monarchy, you know. It's all too easy to get rid of it. Sorry, this is, I don't know why it's gone into this area, but, I'm, but maybe there is something psychological here. You spoke about my dad, I mentioned the monarchy. But I sort of think, well, what goes in its place? I've never been convinced that there was a, a better option. I also think that it underlies a small C conservative mindset, which isn't politically binary to left or right but it's just a pragmatic not seeing the world as you wish it to be but as it is that I think and I, I think that actually really squares with the stand-up personality type right that is exactly what stand-up is so yeah I, I, I think that you know obviously some of what I'm known for is about voting a certain way but I'm I might not vote for those guys forever but I think that part of my personality is you know what you know what your political identity is it's probably formed yeah. It, it actually by bigger things than just a party. What would you do, Annie, if that squirrel come down and said, come on then, you would run a fucking mile. So you're giving it all that. <laughs> Once again, please, just a muscular squirrel to just come and give They're her a- They're very muscular squirrels, aren't they? <laughs> they can be quite hench. Did you see that photo of the one with the massive balls? I mean, you can write all the comedy you want, but it is, it is quite sobering. It, a funny picture of a video of an animal, you go, I will never be as funny as a squirrel with massive balls. You were pretty smart and studious, weren't you? I get the sense that your mum really had aspirations for you yeah. in, in, a, in a brilliant way. Yeah. And she pushed for you to get into what had been a grammar school and then, and had those traditional grammar school values, I suppose. Yeah, Rutledge, again, if you talk about this hinterland between class systems, Rutledge School was 
the epitome of that. In uh, it was a comprehensive in South London, had a you know mainly working class kind of uh, student base, but it also had a recent grammar school pass. So they used to have like a speech night, and they used to get out the, the gowns and the boards. It's fucking weird. It was a bit Hogwartsy. Um, <laughs> they had like a manor house as well, so the main administrative nerve centre of the school was all like dark oak and, and, and carpets and all this sort of stuff. I don't know what's happened to the school now, but I quite like that. It had an old boys club as well, mm. the old Rutlishans. But it was a really weird culture there because you used to go drinking with the teachers quite regularly. You know, I mean, I was having beers with my teachers at the age of 15. I think boundaries were blurred sometimes. <laughs> Where did the funny start, Jeff? And how did it start? Was it... To do with that thing that we were talking about, because all comics often have some sense of being otherised. You mm. know, why would you bother to try and be funny otherwise? You'd just be the jock, the... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, everyone yeah. love. Why would you bother to sort of, like, work that muscle? A formative memory that I have is being eight years old and we went to Afferfield Holiday Camp in the Isle of Wight. So... The marriage, it was tough, you know, at home, but we had a really good holiday. And um, I stood up on stage in a um, best cowboy competition, which is just weird anyway. But all the boys went on, so they had holsters and stetsons, and they said stuff like, my name is Brad, and I come from Texas. Because, uh, you know, in the 80s, we were very obsessed with American culture. It's kind of embarrassing to remember, but we did, we, you know, that we loved NFL. But that was the kind of cultural environment. And so I'd heard all these boys saying that they were from Texas, but I misheard it and I went out and my holster didn't really fit. And I said, my name's Jeff and I come from Essex, <laughs> which now I realise is a very staple way of getting a laugh of a weird name and a weird place, right? And I remember everyone laughing and it just felt, it felt great, you know. So I suppose if you're on the, the therapist's couch, you go, well, there you go. There was a moment where laughter sort of made everything okay yeah. temporarily, you know. If you have a good gig, it's like putting out a fire. You feel really great. But then the next day, the fire's raging again. You're like, for fuck's sake. Like I, at some point, I'd just like to comprehensively put out this fire. So, yeah, your parents both had disabilities as well. Mm. And... I love the way you talk in your memoir about how your dad sort of dealt with that. He lost an arm in a motorbike accident. Yeah, that, that was a long time before I was born. So it was all, that was all quite normal to me. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't a sense of sort of gravitas around it. No, he didn't want to be seen as disabled as yeah. well. Uh, uh, because he... Now, that could be seen as problematic these days, but he was... I guess if you'd have asked him, he'd have probably seen disability as not being able to stand up, you know, a more old-fashioned version of disability. But also that, that self-perception mm. of taking responsibility and not being diminished in any way was, was a positive thing for him. Yeah. And again, on that holiday where I was wearing the cowboy outfit, was, uh, he, he actually won a... a, 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 a like he, he entered into a swimming competition. He was in the bar, he'd had a few beers, and then there was this dad's swimming competition. And he just exited, and, and I remember, I to, my sister remembers it better than me, but fully clothed, went in there with one arm. I think, I don't know if he definitely won, but he didn't do bad either, you know. And it was kind of like a screw you, wasn't it? It's like, I've got one arm, and I'm drunk, and I'm fully clothed, and I'll still give you a lot of run for your money, you know. I love him, Jeff. Well, it's funny because, like, you know, in, in life, you know, both of them have passed now, but in, in life, he, I never thought, my mum was the funny one as a person, you know. She had a strangely, Annie, Annie, no, no, no. Um, she had a strangely sort of, uh, no Annie, yeah so she was funny as a person, she would make people laugh, she had a great like sense of humour in the moment but 
once he passed, my dad, all the best stories were about my dad. And I didn't expect that because everyone was like, well, Jan's funny, Jan's a funny woman. And, and my dad was seen as quite serious because he was into his union work. He always wanted to debate people. But his stubbornness and his single-mindedness really are, you know, he sort of left me with these, this like rich tre treasure trove of anecdotes, which I didn't realise. Some of the things your dad did, like the obsession with transport, I'm fascinated yeah, yeah. by it anyway with men. But he would go to France just for the train. Yeah, so he and took then he'd the, do nothing there. He, he took the Eurostar <laughs> to Lille and he basically got off it and he just went to the other platform, waited for the other one back. So the only food he ever ate in France was a croissant from a vending machine. I'm not that guy, but I'm the croissant from a vending machine, again, I think it's one of these sort of symbols of where my family takes. Why did he go there then, Joe? He just wanted to go on the Eurostar. He wanted to go on the train. So when there was the bullet train into Stratford for the Olympics, same thing. He got to the Olympic Park. He could have got off and walked around the Olympic Park while the Olympics was on. He's like, well, yep, no, that is pretty, pretty slick. That was his phrase for these sort of things. That was pretty slick. And, and he, he also once said to you, oh, I drove around the M25. Yeah, so he, he was in the morning and he was a bit dishevelled and up late, but for him late was like 7am. I asked him what he got up to and he said, oh, I, I drove around the M25 and initially I just thought he meant euphemistically, <laughs> uh, but then there was something in the pause, I said, what, hang on? And he said, yeah, all the way, every junction, always wanted to do it. Like it was a real kind of um, <laughs> uh, bucket list thing. And I've always wanted to do a sitcom episode of something where there's a dad who drives all the way around the M25. Because a lot of blokes I say it to and they're like, yeah. I said, but you've got to think it through, lads. Is that it would just be like being on a normal motorway. You wouldn't feel like you were driving on this big, like kind of loop-de-loop. -loop. It would just be like being on a road where you end up back in the same place. But I think that's interesting. And again, possibly this is a trope and you know, we're making generalizations here, but certainly in my experience, a certain type of man it is to do with um, imposing order, I think. It's the sense of, I can control this. Yeah. Because the world is a chaotic place, and I think women are sometimes a bit more comfortable with chaos. Well, I suppose the multitasking mindset would lend itself to that. Yeah. Like you can accept that there are a number of crazy things happening. Yeah, if you think of, if you think of what blokes look like at airports, right? <laughs> <laughs> I always think it's really funny to observe blokes at airports. If there's like one of those trolleys and the wife's pushing it and there's two or three kids hanging off either side and the guy just looks like he's had to access a really like sort of peaceful place in his mind just to deal with the chaos of it all. And I, like you often see blokes getting told off in airports, which I love, right? Like where the wife's giving him proper hairdryer treatment. And you think it can seem a bit cruel, but then you also think, I bet you any money that morning, he's basically tried to get out of doing as much as possible. So by the point you see them having the row, it's not about what happened in the yeah. last five minutes. Is it the fact that he thought that maybe checking the live departures board on his phone was a job and made that like a 30 minute thing? It's the one thing that I think I will never be like you is when I see those dads with those sort of holster wallet things they wear around the shoulder with yeah. passports and foreign currency and things yeah. in it. And I'm like, who would buy that? Anyone that would wear that and destroy a look with that horrible holster mm. thing. Have you got one of those? I, um, I haven't. <laughs> I was never, so my wife was the, I used to do a routine about it that my wife would have all the passports. Okay. Um, but since it's become electronic, weirdly, the fact that I can screenshot every reference number, detail, hotel, I want to put in, in advance on, on the Maps app, I want to put in all the postcodes of where we need to be. But what I've realised I've become is, 
You know National Lampoon's Chevy Chase, right? Clark Griswold, such a brilliant comic archetype, mm. is that there is something in that character that's really funny, whether it's him or Phil Dunphy in Modern Family, is, is the, the dad mm. that just wants to make everything nice and stuff, but the, the attempt to Im impose order. My dad used to say to me and my sister, like, as a joke, you will have fun. You know, <laughs> he used to say that to us. And I think that there is, there's a certain kind of dad, which I'm sort of becoming where, like, you know, you know blokes will be out and about on holiday and they'll, and sometimes the wife would just say, look, we need to put some food inside this child. But the dad would be like, but that restaurant's like a 4.2. It's only a 4.2, there's a 3.9. If we just walk for another mile, there's a 3.9. And they'll get really obsessed about the 0.3 difference between these restaurants on TripAdvisor. I think that's where the modern bloke resides in that kind of anal behavior, I think. Okay, something's happened. Mm. There's an abandoned pair of tracksuit bottoms, which is alarming me in itself. On, yeah, on, on, a, on a log. Ray has just gone to the bathroom on them. Yeah. I'm going to guess that they were pre-soiled as well. Just playing the odds. In fairness, I've just checked the label. It's ripped out, but I can tell the font is Zara. Wow. You know what you were saying earlier about Detail. women? Yeah, that's incredible. And it's also... <laughs> I don't know what kind of detective show this would be, but she's really good at checking what label clothes were. Jeff Norcott was a teacher, which I'm obsessed with that bit of information. You can walk down this way. Yeah. After you'd left school, you did it. You worked in sort of ad sales for ITV. Yeah. So after university, I was I was yeah worked in broadcast admin as it was called then. So checking compliance I guess and then I worked in like ad sales but it's not like cold calling it was for ITV it was it was a reasonable level he had the veneer of being an important job <laughs> and then uh, you ended up teaching yeah. you got a 2-1 as I say from Goldsmiths I feel it's interesting that you you got your act together and your dad helped you didn't he he like imposed help in post he did yeah yeah you. moved in for yeah get up early that's one thing I, I fundamentally agree with him and believe. Yeah, just get up early, for God's sake, you know. I mean, it's my, probably the most British sounding thing I'll ever say, but for God's sake, get up early, get out of your pyjamas, get a shower, get dressed, just get on with it. Like, it makes me feel very tacky when I see people in their pyjamas after 9am. Like, really? and, and, and dressing gowns on women after, it's a real... That was, what's it called, an ick? Well, this is based on an incident. Your poor mum. Yeah. You came home, and how old were you? You must have been, you're quite a young kid. Maybe 11, maybe. And you were disgusted because she had a dressing gown on. Yeah, she was sitting with a bunch of other women that were all in their dressing gowns. And I just, again, you talk about your political identity. That's the most middle England thing in the world to do is come and think, for God's sake, you know, just, and of course she's an adult. She was a great mother and stuff. I had no right to judge her like that, but I just was, I just couldn't believe that she'd been pissing about all day in, in a dressing gown. I was forget maybe moving to the council estate. I, I, my mum actually, it was her inst instilled it, right? Don't drop your standards and stuff. And it sounds like a problematic thing to say, but you know, there were a lot of people on that estate out of that work at that time, there were social problems. So it was like, right, let's keep the stands up. Let's not swear. Yeah. Let's get dressed, you know? And, and so I'd been to school and a lot of kids on that estate weren't going to school. So we used to get the piss taken out of us, me and my sister. So it's probably seeing my mum in the dressing gown, it was just one day, but mm. it's probably a symptom of like, bloody, it's hard enough you know, going to school. And, and ever since then, you know, it's a running joke between me and my mother-in-law is that she loves a dressing gown. You know, once she gets inside the house, 
And you know, I've seen evidence of dressing gowns at school pickups and stuff. I just I keep my thoughts to myself. I think that's just interesting in terms of where you are now and how I suppose that it's order again, I see that as a need for order and... It's, it's an interesting thing. When you've got kids that didn't have as much order at a time in their lives when they were young, it's interesting they can become very serious like older people, you know, because they're trying to, you can, there's a lot of it, you know, with my parents, I want to recreate all the great stuff, but being a parent yourself is that chance to, uh, is that chance to sort of recast your own childhood in a weird way. You go, I can sort it out. Yes. I can sort it out, but you, you don't really. You just sort of create different problems. And how do you deal with the fact that you're obviously in a better position financially, you're more secure financially than your parents were, presumably, and I always think that's interesting how that works with your kids because you're aware, I can imagine you have that sense, understandably, of I don't want my kids to experience any deprivation, I want to shield yeah. them from having to fight and strive. Yeah, it's almost like, pathological, I would say. It's tricky, Jeff, isn't it? Because mm. that's what's got you mm. the things that you want. That's what's yeah. got you doing a job that you love. Shielding them from all pain mm. is also not teaching them to meet life. Yeah, I think that with my son, I think he had, you know, some circumstances. So his, his material situation, he won't experience that, but there are other things going on which are... Sure emotionally not they're hot you know there's there's issues with illness in the family there's yeah. been certain deaths in the family so he's he's sort of had his share of that in that respect yeah but i i think when you live on a council estate there's definitely a feeling i think um colin murray said this once he said it's like you never stop running from poverty it's like mm. this breakneck sort of sprint that never ends and and, and there was an old agent of mine and jeff whiten who's a bit of a legend <laughs> you know jeff he said you know it's, comedy's like pushing a car up a hill, so you can get it a really long way up the hill, but the moment you take your hand off that car, it could go all the way back down to the bottom. So that sort of suits my way of thinking, but I think it's probably a bit destructive. It's quite exhausting, you know. You yeah. basically give yourself no time off, and the way that my game works now, with social media, podcast numbers, it's about numbers with me. It's all about numbers, right? How did that tweet do? How did that video clip do? How did this week's podcast do? You know, what's the bank account doing? It's really weird how much of it just comes down to numbers. Is it up or down? It's like a, like a footsie in my mind. Well, you've always Annie, used Annie, comedy Annie, in quite a pragmatic way, because when you started doing stand-up, you were a teacher, Annie. which I imagine taught you some useful skills about crowd control and imposing yeah sort of status and authority on a room. You start doing stand-up essentially as a kind of side hustle to, to help meet your bills. Yeah, that's what's weird. It was, it's not a very romantic view of doing an <laughs> art form. Like, I, I, I always loved it, but actually the reason I did more of it was because me and, me and my wife, um, it was the mid-noughties, and um, we were both working and we were just getting more skin. The council tax was going up. A lot of that time there was a lot of stealth taxes and it was just, it, well you couldn't put it down to any one thing. It wasn't like the cost of living crisis now, but everything seemed to be getting more expensive. And I didn't want to get in debt. A lot of people were getting in debt at that time, as you remember, partly you know, why the credit crunch hit so hard. So I just thought, shit, I just need to work more. So that's what I did. So I, then I became full-time comic, but then was supply teaching as well. So I was sort of supply teaching three times a week, maybe gigging four or five times a week. And to be honest, you know, again, this is revelations that I'm having. That's kind of what I do now because I write on TV shows, I, I do radio stuff, I write articles, you know, I've sort of found a way of carrying on that 
work pattern right now because you just think well there is that bottom falling out you know the, I, I don't know maybe people who've come from money also have this but it's just that feeling that the ground could give way but you seem you seem quite stable for a comedian um <laughs> yeah it's funny like there are people in comedy i would say that you know catherine has incredible stability romesh is another person as well we go you don't feel like a comic Mm. feel like a normal person that does comedy you know they have this exceptional mind and way of seeing the world but yeah the the the, the sort of old-fashioned view of our comic was would uh, that'd be too exhausting really but i do get, i do get jealous when i think about the old school guys where they would just or even how i used to work you gig thursday to saturday mm. sit around scratching your balls for five days and then what i mean by stable i'm not knocking yeah. any of your contemporaries and friends yeah. and similarly my friends i guess what i mean by stability is I'm talking about that extreme idea, like Richard Pryor, or yeah. that idea of the comic genius and the tax you pay. Yeah, and I, I think that, like I think as a live comic, I, I, I back myself a lot. I don't, don't think I would ever be in the absolute top tier, but so maybe- What do like, you mean? Well, I think that when you look at people that, like for one, what, what you're talking about necessitates either a level of perhaps trauma or, ego perhaps to even Do you think so to, what to, to be so you think to be at the level of i don't know i mean even john this, belushi john belushi people like that in in the last you know that even that level of attention i don't know i don't think i cope very well with it i mean this week alone i've been a sort of sidebar to a story that's been a lead story in the news and it's done my head in so really I, yeah a bit yeah so i don't i don't you know i, I play sort of four or five hundred seaters now if i could play 700 seaters That'd be great if I could do that for the rest of my life. There's no... How would you feel if they said tomorrow you're doing the O2? Um, terrified. Yeah. I mean, that's what you sort of realise as well, is that, you know, the people that do really well in comedy, they are built for it, that they have a different engine. Like someone like, like Romish, when I'm, you know, I've seen how busy he gets and how well he deals with that, of having lots of different things going on. I can get overwhelmed much quicker than that. And I fret, you know, fret a lot. What? I have this recurring dream about being doing A-levels again. So I got three A's at A-level, right? It was a shining moment at that time. And then the dream is that I'm back at, um, back at Sixth Form College. I've taken the same subjects, right, for some reason, and it's going shit. And, and I'm trying to tell people it's going bad and I won't be able to get three A's. It's so literal as well. This is what I hate <laughs> about my dreams. There's no, like, subtlety in them. It's so obvious what's going on. It's like, I find it hard to, <laughs> to sort of recreate past successes and I'm trying to find out whether or not if I fail my levels, whether it will supersede the A-level results I got before. I'm good at being, you know, very busy, being exceptionally busy. Mm. I don't know. I don't know how well I'd cope with that. I want to talk just a little bit more because I know we should let you go soon. But I should say again, your book, which I've just read and it's fantastic and it's called The British Bloke Decoded. Everything from banter to man flu finally explained. And it's basically, it's kind of a celebration of a very particular type of man. And would you say you, you are the archetypal bloke? I can be. I mean, even if you just go basic metrics, you know, height, weight, interests, you know, <laughs> like what I like is, I, th I suppose the thing is, is I am the basic bloke, but I'm also, because I'm a comic, there's another version of me looking down at me and finding it funny mm. how basic I am. Like, I do, you know, I like curry, I like lager, I like, 
Marvel films, I like football, you know, I like solitude, I like travelodges, you know, I like all this stuff. It is, I suppose, yeah, it's like a sympathetic stock take for, the, for those guys who are maybe a bit useless at times, but just sort of trying their best. Because, you know, the last few years, there was a point where mail did become a pejorative for something negative, and I understand the cultural sort of framework that that happened in. And you don't want to be one of those guys going, not all men. But he goes, well, instead of saying not all men, you go, what about blokes? Because I think that the problem is with dialogue that happens in sort of mainstream media, it does, you know, most, you know, people won't have that experience of most of the men around them. You know, they will mm. have brothers, uncles, people they depend on love and stuff. So it's, it's yeah, it's a fond, it's a fond kind of um, stock take of those guys. I guess. There and trying to unpack it a bit, because I think men are quite baffling to women as well. Like blokey <laughs> behaviour. I don't think women are angry about it, I just think they're confused. You know, when it comes to blokes and loneliness and knowing stuff about our friends' lives, it might not be, it might not become to you naturally. Like you might be sitting having a right laugh with your mates and go, fuck's sake, like we've got to talk about our lives now. You know, it's not that your <laughs> lives are bad, it's just that you just think it's so much fun right now and we have to like drag it down with like, the stress and responsibility. I was thinking, what's a realistic thing that blokes could take? Because a lot of blokes come home from times with their friends and they've got no new information about their friends. And I think that this is quite perplexing to their partners, right? They're like, I don't understand. You were away for three days and you don't know about how your friends work or family lives are going. Two things, right? I reckon this is, you know, like five a day with the fruit and veg. That made sense to people. Mm. So you, people might do two a day, but at least they're not doing zero a day. Two pieces of information. That's what blokes should do, is if they go away and spend time together, two like solid, nuggety bits of information to come home to their partners and say, did you know Dave got a promotion? Or, <laughs> or Greg's youngest, as they've had to move classes because of an issue with some kid that was bullying them. That's a lot of detail, even that I recognise for a lot of blokes listening, they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not for your partner, it's just that, I don't know, I suppose the problem is you get older as a bloke, you think like no one else really knows what's going on with you. And one of the things I mentioned in the book was about uh, Mr. Banks and Mary Poppins, right? The whole idea is that that film is about, he's got it all wrong at the beginning and he just needs to be nice and sing songs with his family. And, and you go, also he did have it right, like he was taking his responsibilities seriously and everyone's just like dicking around and dancing with penguins, like cartoon penguins and stuff. He's, it's not wrong where he was at, he definitely could be more compassionate and more empathetic, but his family could also go, God, you do a really hard job at the Bank of England. Cheers for that. We live in a fucking really nice gaff. You know, we've got staff. Like, actually, let's just give Mr. Banks... Jeffrey, is that a boar? A boar? It looks like a pig or something. Look at it, that dog. I think it's just a fat dog. Yeah, so Mr. Banks... Yeah, and then, then I kind of thought there's a moment in that film where, where Jane and Michael are just bitching about Banks yet again. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And, and then Bert, which I think was real like bro code, Bert goes, but you've got people looking out for you, or you've got like the policeman, you've got your mum, you've got your thing, but what about your poor old daddy? Just carries on doing his work, silent and alone. And this is what I thought, the problem with men is that feeling of like, is anyone even clocking what's going on with me? You know, because you're supposed to just get on with it. Stop bitching about banks. You also defend dirty dancing. Yeah. You mount a great defence for the dad. Dr Jake Hausman, the hero of Dirty Dancing, you mean, who actually saves a life in that film and, and quite rightly has got a very cautious eye over his 
daughter dicking around with some geezer called Johnny Castle. I would say that what's going on in that nightclub, if it's not fueled by some sort of amphetamine, it doesn't even make sense. And love Patrick Swayze, God rest his soul. Yeah. But how old was he? I mean, come on. Earlier in the film, right, it's very quickly forgotten that he was turning tricks with that bored housewife, right? And he, and then quite quickly, it's like, oh, well, they're in love. You go, no, no father worth, worth his salt would not at least be quite concerned at how it's developing. And then when, then when he comes up to him at the end, he's like, nobody puts baby in a corner. I'd be like, sorry, mate, who the fuck are you coming up to me in front of my wife? All right? You're part of the Ents crew, mate. You just completely emasculated him in front of his missus. Also, Jeff. Yeah. I'm sorry. Nobody puts baby in the corner. Might be quite good for baby to have the odd moment in the corner. Yeah. Little bit of a nightmare at the moment. Baby is running around all over this holiday camp, getting involved in dramas she doesn't need to be part of. Baby also no previous dance experience, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Suddenly setting herself up as part of the Ents crew, as you say. Well, yeah. When the daddy... Maybe sit in the corner and watch. Get your ten thousand hours, love. <laughs> How old is she in that film, by the way? 16? Yeah. She's going to join the Peace Corps as well. Oh, come on. I'd just say, as a dad, all respect to the male (laughs) dancing community, it's not a career of massive longevity, is it? So (laughs) the idea of how he's going to provide when his hips give out. Oh, God. I I just thought it's so so seductive, isn't it, Hollywood, where you go, right, Banks, he's the kind of grey cloud in this film, and Dr Jake Hausman is just ruining baby's fun. What? When actually, you need blokes like that. Well, I wish you every success with it, and I think it's so great, your book. And Thank you. I want to ask how you're doing, because it's not a question that... You know, I'd always ask a woman that, do yeah. you know what I mean? But how is, your, how is your head, and how are you? It's OK. I went through a period uh, in August where it came round to the anniversary of my dad dying, which was eight years ago, and I had a real wobble, like, really. Just, it manifested in a weird way. I was like, oh, everyone's abandoning me, no-one can... can you know, like, sort yeah. of... It was a really weird connection. And then just this, I don't know, that weird, that weird debate I had on Politics Live about men under the age of 50, suicide being the leading cause of death. It was, there was a sort of sentient reaction to it, but there was also this emotional thing was like, does anyone care? And it took me back to my mate Mick, who, you know, who died you know, before he got to 40. And it's not connected to what, he did not mm. kill himself or anything. It was just, when I sat down, you know, and you just, journal or whatever and that's one thing that's not very blokey that I've become good at is just start talking about it writing about it right what am I really upset about because I can tell I'm upset is it this and you almost have to keep moving things out of the way it's not that it's not that and you go oh why was I so rattled and he goes because mm. I just feel felt like I just want to make sure that people cared do you know what's interesting as well is that you experienced really traumatic multiple loss because you and I weird I think that's why we get on, oddly, is same time, same sort of year, but you experienced the loss of, you'd lost your mum anyway, quite early, and then you lost your dad, you lost your best mate, and you had a Yeah, stillborn for 34 weeks. And then also my stepdad died like six, uh, eight months after my dad. And so, yeah, that that was, I mean, I think what's happening now is, is I haven't realised like, if you have like loads of grief that happens close together, they all have to take yeah. their time in the spotlight. But what it means is the total time grieving will be a lot longer because all of a sudden exactly. the one that you didn't give as much attention to because you were dealing with the other one just pops its head up like a fucking that's, sad that's, whack-a-mole. And you go, oh, right, it's that now, is it? That's exactly the metaphor that I always think of, is that mm. 
because it was so close together, yeah. I expected to lose my parents, but I didn't expect to lose my sister, my mum, and then my dad in like less than three years. And then yeah. it was like, oh my God, they've all got... And then you don't get a chance to mourn those people separately. So no. I think what happens is that it does become this slight tsunami that you can't let it all out, so you park it. But it does mean that it will hit you. It will keep hitting you. And you've, you said something in your book, which I really related to, Jeff. And you said, it's almost like you're quite drawn to people that have experienced that. It's not that you don't appreciate the support and love of people who haven't experienced that, but it's it's almost like a fluent fluency that... Yeah, yeah. And you also know they've been stress tested as people. <laughs> you know, they've got the kite mark uh, for durability. I think one thing that's happened to me recently, and you'll have the same thing with your sister, is you'll go, right, I'm a different woman now. I'm a yeah. woman at this, at this age, and this is how I feel now, because I can now look back to that period where I had all those losses, and that was now seven, eight years ago. So I was a genuinely much younger man then and, yeah. and so I, I look back on that guy and think it's a weird process of and I hate to use the word but pitying that bloke you know going fucking that was shit you know yeah and just thinking like I wasn't equipped then to actually reach out for what I needed you can't just ignore the fact that it's different for blokes you know in terms of crying and stuff I mean I've got a thing in the stand-up tour at the moment where I say that men should cry but alone and in a soundproof room which is obviously the kind of like mm. flippant thing that you say in stand-up to get a reaction but I do think it's a bit like if you're not match fit at something right you don't cry as often as a bloke when you do it the moment you observe doing it you become self-conscious yeah it's like if you film a line in the wild it's, you're not filming a line in the wild because there's a camera there yeah so I think blokes look ugly when they cry basically it's awful it's almost like you're having this ugly metamorphosis so it's actually just better to do it alone which sounds really sad but it's just like a, it's better to do it at all is my point because mm. the problem with blokes is they'll be with you know their partner or with mates and they'll feel that feeling coming they'll, they'll shut it down but if you know that feeling's there then just get to safety yeah. <laughs> i realize this sounds like toxic masculinity <laughs> get to safety as quickly as possible and get it out i mean i i'm turning it into sas are you tough or not well sometimes this kind of language is like yeah. you know, get to a position take the high ground <laughs> you know like when you were younger if you was really drinking some guys would have what they call a tactical chunder which was they'd make themselves <laughs> sick to go and drink a beer, which is absolutely disgusting i never actually did that but i sometimes if if i'm heading into a busy period i'll think right have i got anything here that needs to get out let's let's have a little purge not in a you know sort of that kind of way but let's let's kind of clear the decks a little bit <laughs> and 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 a lot of the way when you talk about men and mental health if, if you just get the right language it speaks to blokes more you know like think of counseling as sort of like a service you know a yeah. full 12,000 mile service and stuff because the first council I ever went to she said to me it's okay to be weak I was like oh you're weak uh, why are we saying weak who said why are we saying the w word and I was immediately <laughs> scanning scanning for exits and you know she she was saying things like, oh that must have been very hard and tilting ahead I was like I don't, I don't want to hear that I just I don't know what I want but I don't want that you know so I do think that there is a, a different language needed with blokes and and, and that's great health. that you had counsel was that after you lost your daughter Jeff no you? that was after my mum I've had it you know a, a lot I mean I will say this and this is uh, I've had so much counseling now where there is a point where you just you hear yourself saying and you think oh shut the fuck up like how many times you said this you get to a point you think the counsellor is just going to be like mouthing the words along like a sort of like a well-known song you just go I really am I at the point where I just need to just crack on with this now 
And this is the problem, isn't it? I say a progressive thing on one hand, but then I can't not say what I really think, which is there is a point with trauma where you might need to check in from time to time, but ultimately... You don't so want to be the ancient mariner. Yeah, what, telling that? your tale with the constant need to tell uh, your is tale. Is that what that's about? Yeah. You just get a bit, he's... See, if I'd known that, I'd have read it years ago. That's funny. That's good. He's got a constant need to tell his tale. Oh, my God. He just, great. everyone he meets, oh, mate, you'll never guess what happened to me. So Nightmare. See, this would be a really funny nickname for a bloke on a stag, <laughs> stag do. Oh, it's the ancient mariners here. Telling the same fucking stories from the 90s. I think you're such a lovely man. I think you're such a lovely lady. And I'm really glad to have met your dog. He doesn't look evil in the flesh. What do you think of him, Jeff? I really think he's really cool. Like, he just take, you know, he's been on a lot of these walks and he's just, he's really cool part of the squad. What do people get wrong about you? Um, well, there's the obvious mad stuff where they just think I'm a fascist. You know, like, like they heard how I voted like eight years ago and they think that I hate people. That's probably, that's probably... Because you vote, because you're a Tory. Yeah, yeah, like voting patterns and stuff like that. Whereas... I suppose what a lot of the stuff I've talked about is just to try and do something that's slightly provocative to create a better dialogue, I suppose, you know, to create a consensus. And not many people think that now, but it is kind of strange every once in a while to, for somebody to perceive you as a hateful person when genuinely, I, I, I don't hate anyone. I think I'm probably too narcissistic to hate anybody. Do, I, do you think you're narcissistic? Well, I think I, 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 I think about myself enough that I probably qualify as. <laughs> on some level, I mean, I'm stand-up after all. But you don't, yeah. I can't really imagine you being, I like, do, losing I, your temper. Well, it happens very, very, very rarely. How really does it rarely. manifest itself? So if I'm your... Intensity. Does it? Yeah, yeah. Really, you know, just like, like, I'm so certain I'm right about something, that it would just, it'd all get very intense. Um, and, and, you know, and being a father as well, like, you realise that, that, that it's important that your child knows that that's a kind of line, you know? And it's really weird, because I only like, you know, my son, there's only been a couple of times, but he's still like, he's manufactured a wait till your father gets home situation, where my wife is definitely more terrifying than me, like, hands down, but he's like, don't tell daddy that I did that. I'm like, but dude, it was like, I shouted at you twice in your whole life. But, you know, because I always remember my mum said to me, like, there were certain things that kids do that you really, you know, whether it's, biting or stuff, you know, the really important thing that kids should never do, that the first time they do it, they have to remember that that is an absolute red line. Mm. So it's almost like you have to put on a character, a bit like a teacher <laughs> as well. I quite enjoyed that when I was teaching, you know. Yeah, I'm livid. If you say you're <laughs> livid, I don't, I don't know if I've ever been livid. It's fun <laughs> to pretend. Are you quite a strict dad, Jeff? Um, well, yeah, like I, I won't, like he has to speak to, to me and my wife respectfully and and stuff, and um, and there is that thing in boys, like where they just they think because they're boys that they they've got to, they've got, like the other day I was we were talking about fencing, right? Like about like the sport of fencing. Mm. He seemed quite into it, and then within ten minutes he's telling me all about fencing, like he's the fucking world expert of fencing. Um, so yeah, I sort of as, as well, you know, it's twenty twenty three. You're sort of okay. The world you're entering into, boys more than ever need to mm. not, you know, be like that as as much. But my son, he's brilliant as well. I've realised I should, should say, I think, he's, I think he's incredible. What do you, when you think about when he gets older, um, what think, do you hope that he says about you? Well, I think he, he said to me recently while he was uh, away, and he said, I, he just said that he liked me, and, uh, and that even if I, if I wasn't his dad, that he thought that we'd be friends. And that was the nicest thing anyone's ever said. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Yeah. 
That's making me cry a bit. It's a, yeah. yeah, it made me emotional. And I, I sort of thought like, you know they say, oh, you should never try and be your child's friend. I'm like, you know what? My son is such a nice lad. I'm going to fucking break that rule. I think saying I like you, that's pretty big. Yeah, because he has to love me, doesn't he? Like legally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a financial practical reason. Yeah, yeah, he's got to stay, yeah. I can see why you have a dog. Yeah. Partly because there's something quite traditional about the bloke and his dog. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the fam- they're the heartbeat of a traditional family, a dog, aren't they? And the walking's good for mental health, Jeff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're definitely, I've never come back from walk feeling worse than, it's like the gym, isn't it, or going to church. Oh, Jeff. so we're going to part here. Should, can I drop you home? No, my car's right there. Oh, your car's yeah, yeah. there. Yeah. I've had such a nice walk with you, and I want to remind everyone, they can... Well, firstly, can they go and see you on tour soon? Yeah, yeah, so I'm on tour until the end of May 2024, new dates. It's good. The tour's called Basic Bloke, and the book's called The British Bloke Decoded, so I am... Uh... <laughs> nicely, nicely, nicely. This is an amazing dog. Is this a Frenchie or a... He is, yeah. He's so unusual for a Frenchie. Oh. He is a bit tiny. Oh, he's got beautiful colour. Oh, he's the most stunning dog. Lovely to meet you. Um, thank you for being so sweet with Raymond. No, not at all. It's good to meet him. Would you say goodbye, Jeff? Bye, Raymond. I couldn't commit because I felt ridiculous. I really hope you enjoyed that episode of Walking the Dog. We'd love it if you subscribed and do join us next time on Walking the Dog wherever you get your podcasts.